biosimilars have been approved by the US FDA and more are going to receive approval soon. With this level of disruption in US retina practice, what do you need to know? I'm Scott Kriswanis, that's Greg Notstein, and this is New Retina Radio from Retina Today and Bryn Mawr Communications. Dr. George Williams, the Senior Secretary for Advocacy at the AAO, joined us to preview what practice might look like now that biosimilars are a fact of life. And Dr. Caroline Baumel sat down with us to discuss the Yosemite and Rhine studies, which released two-year results. How did patients receiving perisimab respond during their second year of treatment? We'll hear from Dr. Baumel. If you've been following New Retina Radio's coverage, or really any news coverage in ophthalmology, you know that biosimilars are one of the chief agents for disruption in the medical retina market. Two biosimilars have already been approved by the U.S. FDA, and a handful of others are undergoing trial investigations or have submitted regulatory filings. The downstream effects of biosimilars' emergence remain unclear. Still, it's worth taking a snapshot of the state of biosimilars as of Q4 2022. And that's exactly what Dr. George Williams did at this year's AAO annual meeting. Dr. Williams is here today to discuss that lecture. Dr. Williams is chair of the Department of Ophthalmology at the William Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak, Michigan. He's also the senior secretary for advocacy at the American Academy of Ophthalmology. Dr. Williams, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure and privilege to be with you. The word biosimilar is one we've all heard plenty of times in the past two years. In the interest of ensuring that we're using the proper terms in this conversation, can you walk us through what a biosimilar is and what a biosimilar is not? Certainly. Well, biosimilars are a result of the explosion of biologic products that are now available for a variety of therapeutic indications. A biosimilar is a biologic product that's compared to another biologic product that is termed the reference product. For example, BioViz, which is an FDA-approved biosimilar, uses ranibizumab as its reference product. In the eyes of the FDA, in order to qualify as a biosimilar, the biosimilar must be highly similar to the reference product across a a variety of comparisons. So for example, immunogenicity, molecular structure, purity, and most importantly, clinical effect. As you know, biosimilars are complex biologic products, which means they're produced in a much different way than so-called chemical drugs. These are large complex molecules that are produced in live organisms. And as such, they need to be carefully monitored for quality and consistency across their therapeutic spectrum. Let's further explore the concept of similarity. How is similarity assessed in clinical studies? Well, there are three specific characteristics that will help to define similarity. Purity, in other words, are there any contaminants present in the 
biosimilar or the reference product. Molecular structure, in other words, how closely does this complex molecule mimic the reference structure? And then of course, and again, most importantly, it's, it's bioactivity. So for a biosimilar to be approved, the FDA has to have confidence that it is highly similar to the reference product in terms of the purity, the molecular structure, and the bioactivity. The way in which bioactivity is assessed is typically going to be clinical trials. And so studies are performed to show that the biosimilars have no clinically meaningful differences in terms of safety, purity, or potency. And we would define potency as safety and efficacy compared to the reference product. So there will be studies on pharmacokinetics. There will be studies on pharmacodynamics, immunogenicity, and then clinical studies as needed by the FDA to gain confidence that the biosimilar has no clinically meaningful differences from the reference product. We sometimes think in conversation, uh, and we frame the discussion, that biosimilars are somewhat similar to generics, or we think that generics are to drugs as biosimilars are to biologics. Is that quite accurate, or does that miss the mark a little bit? Well, I think conceptually it's correct. The difference is now we're dealing with much more complex molecular entities. So in a chemical generic, the structure of the drug can almost always be completely duplicated. That's not the case with biosimilars. And hence the name, that's why we don't call these generics. So the reason is that, again, these are very complex molecules and there are, can be relatively minor changes in terms of their tertiary structure, in terms of how the proteins fold over on each other that may not have clinical distinction, but do create a somewhat different ergo similar product. How does the FDA approve biosimilars? It's a very rigorous process in which the FDA has to gain confidence that the biosimilar is in fact highly similar, that's their terminology, highly similar to the previously approved reference product. And that's what gives the FDA some confidence that they don't have to repeat all the clinical trials that the reference product went through. So that said, the FDA will in fact hold biosimilars to the same rigorous standards that characterize FDA approval. So for example, biosimilars must be produced in FDA licensed facilities. Uh, the packaging must be up to FDA standards. 
there must be post-marketing surveillance that is a contingency of the approval such that the FDA and frankly patients and physicians can have confidence in the uh, long-term use of the biosimilar. The FDA does all this under the philosophy that biosimilar drugs, once approved, are as safe and effective as the biologics that they reference. The goal here is to provide more treatment options for patients and to frankly lower costs via competition. At this year's annual meeting, you highlighted a few biosimilars in your presentation. Could you tell us about those? Certainly. So today we have two FDA approved biosimilars. BioViz, which again is reference to ranibizumab, has been approved for all FDA indications for the ranibizumab 0.5 milligram dose. So that means it's not approved for the diabetic indications. And the price has been announced at uh, $1,150 per vial. Similarly, again, references ranibizumab, but it has been declared an interchangeable biosimilar. It's priced currently at $1,360 for the 0.5 milligram dose and $816 for the 0.3 milligram dose. So similarly, we'll cover all FDA approved indications for ranibizumab. Another drug that's still in development is a biosimilar, but interestingly, it will not be treated as a biosimilar. And that is the biosimilar for bevacizumab, uh, Liteneva. The reason this will not be considered a, a true biosimilar is that it is for a drug, bevacizumab, that we're all familiar with, that has no FDA-approved ocular indications. So as a result, it appears that uh, this product will be approved as a new molecular entity, which raises uh, a variety of questions. It feels like biosimilars are injecting major change into the dynamics of retina care, particularly in the United States. Can you outline some of the uncertainties surrounding biosimilars in American retina practice? Well, I think there's no question that it has the potential to be very disruptive to clinical practices. The first issue that we're going to have to sort out is the implications for step therapy. In other words, how are these drugs going to be integrated into step therapy protocols? What is going to define a failure in order to allow access to the reference products? And what exactly and how will different carriers define failure? 
So I think it's going to be a very interesting 12 months coming up as we start to get input from payers, and particularly in the Medicare Advantage space, how they intend to integrate biosimilars into their step therapy protocols. Another issue that ophthalmology has not had to deal with yet, but is probably coming, is the concept of uh, brown bagging and white bagging. It's not what you might think. This is a concept that's well known to our oncology colleagues. And it was developed for the delivery and treatment of a host of oncologic drugs. And the concept is that in brown bagging, the pharmacy buys the drug directly from the drug company or an intermediary supplier and then bills the payer. In other words, there's no physician interaction on the purchase of the drug. The patient then picks up the drug at the pharmacy and then brings it to the physician's office for administration. The physician therefore can only bill for the administration of the drug and the physician on the positive side assumes no risk for the, the price of the drug or the payment for the drug. Brown bagging works for drugs that don't require uh, strict protocols as far as temperature control and other potential variables. For that reason, I think brown bagging is unlikely to gain much traction in the ophthalmic space. White bagging, however, is a similar concept in which the pharmacy buys the drug again from the pharmaceutical company or an intermediary supplier, and again, bills the payer. But this time, the pharmacy and the drug company uh, ship the drug directly to the physician's office for administration. So this would mean that drugs that require temperature control and transit, that temperature control can be maintained. But again, since the physician or the office has not paid for the drug, the physician can only bill for the administration of the drug going forward. And so this raises a variety of questions about how physicians will be able to cover their costs going forward with a a white bagging system. There's a lot of changes on the horizon. I sense that we are not done talking about biosimilars in retina. Dr. Williams, thanks for joining us on the program and filling us in on the latest updates. It's great talking with you. Thank you very much. The bispecific antibody fericimab has been approved by the US FDA for the treatment of wet AMD and DME since January. As we approach the end of the year and as more clinics start stocking the drug, we thought we'd take a look at some of the latest data with Dr. Caroline Baumel. 
Dr. Baumel presented the two-year results of the Yosemite and Rhine studies at this year's AAO annual meeting. She practices at the Tufts Medical Center in Boston. Dr. Baumel, welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. Great to talk with you, Scott and Greg. Remind us why ANG2 inhibition has a role in treating retinal and choroidal vascular diseases. ANG2 is an element of the angiopoietin pathway, and this pathway is involved in vascular integrity. In homeostatic states, ANG1 is bound to the TIE2 receptor, and this supports tight junctions between endothelial cells and vascular stability. However, in pathologic conditions or hypoxia, ANG2 is upregulated and ANG2 becomes a major player binding to the TIE2 receptor. And this leads to breakdown of tight junctions, inflammation, and vascular instability. So both ANG2 as well as VEGFA play a role in vascular instability in wet AMD and diabetic macular edema. A technology that addresses both of these pathways could be a key to efficacy control in these disorders. And a bispecific antibody such as furisumab also has potential to extend durability compared with anti-VEGF monotherapy. You presented the two-year Yosemite and Rhine data. The one-year data were assessed by FDA in their decision to approve furisumab for use in DME. Did the study design change in the second year of the study? To review the background of Yosemite and Rhine studies, these were two phase three randomized double mass active comparator controlled trials. Patients were enrolled with center-involved diabetic macular edema defined as CST of 325 microns or greater and best corrected visual acuity measuring between 25 to 73 ETDRS letters. For the study design, there were two furisumab arms and furisumab was given in a fixed interval of every eight weeks after six monthly loading doses or furisumab was given as a PTI, the personalized treatment interval arm after four monthly loading doses. These two furosemab arms were compared to a flibercept given as per label of two milligrams every eight weeks after five monthly loading doses. The primary endpoint was the mean change in best corrected visual acuity from baseline averaged over months 48, 52, and 56. And in the studies, all arms met the primary endpoint of non-inferiority of visual acuity improvement with meaningful vision improvement in all three study arms. In year two, patients remained in the same treatment arm and in the same dosing regimens as year one, and the best corrected visual acuity change was evaluated from baseline to average over months, and the best corrected visual acuity change was evaluated and averaged over weeks 92, 96, and 100. All right, so the table is set for the study. Tell us what the initial findings were at year two. When we pulled the results of the two studies, we found that the vision gains that were achieved in year one were maintained in year two 
in all of the treatment arms and all arms were comparable with visual acuity. The mean reductions in central subfield thickness with the furosemab arms exceeded a flibercept in year one, and these central subfield thickness reductions were maintained in year two. Let's take a closer look at that personalized treatment interval arm. In real-world practice, a personalized treatment interval would be akin to treat-and-extend therapy. How many patients were able to be extended and therefore have their treatment burden reduced? So to review the personalized treatment arm, this was based on achieving a central subfield thickness of less than 325 microns. And in this arm, the interval between injections could be as long as 16 weeks or as short as four weeks. And this depended on the central subfield thickness OCT values with visual acuity inputs. So what we found at year two, 62% of patients in the PTI arm were being treated at a 16-week treatment interval. 16% of patients in the PTI arm were at the 12-week treatment interval. Overall, 78% of patients at the end of the study were in either the 12 or the 16-week treatment interval at the end of the two-year study. Here are some more data from the PTI arm. 76% of patients who were extended to be in the 16-week interval arm at the end of year one remained in the 16-week interval treatment regimen through the end of year two without a reduction of the interval between injections. 79% of patients who achieved every 12 or every 16-week dosing at week 52 maintained every 12 or every 16-week dosing without an interval reduction below every 12 week through week 96. The median number of injections in year two were three injections in patients who are in the furosemab PTI arm compared to five injections for patients who are in the furosemab every eight-week arm and in the aflibercept every eight-week arm. Let's talk anatomy. What was observed in year two? To review, patients with a central subfield thickness less than 325 microns were considered to no longer have diabetic macular edema. In the pooled cohort, the proportion of patients with absence of diabetic macular edema at year one and through year two was greater with furosemab every eight week or PTI up to every 16 week compared to a flibercept every eight week. Similarly, absence of intraretinal fluid through year two was achieved by more patients treated with furosemab every eight week or furosemab PTI up to every 16 weeks versus a flibercept every eight weeks. I presented two post hoc analysis. In one of these, the time point at which the cumulative incidence of absence of diabetic macular edema reached 75% was at week 20 in the furosemab every eight week and PTI arms after an average of 4.8 or 4.2 injections respectively. The furosemab every eight week arm the 75th percentile 
was reached at week 36 after an average of 6.7 injections. In another post hoc analysis, more patients treated with verisimab every eight weeks or PTI up to every 16 weeks achieved absence of intraretinal fluid earlier and with fewer injections than a aflibercept. And the time point at which the cumulative incidence of absence of diabetic macular edema reached 50% was week 48 in the verisimab every eight week and PTI arms after an average of 8.4 or 7.5 injections, respectively. In the flibercept every eight-week arm, the 50th percentile was reached at week 84 after an average of 11.7 injections. Before we wrap up here, could you please give us a summary of the safety data? Overall, furosemab was well-tolerated with an acceptable safety profile compared with a flibercept. The incidence of intraocular inflammation events were low across all treatment arms, and there were no cases of retinal vasculitis or occlusive retinal vasculitis reported. Dr. Baumel, as always, thank you so much for joining us on New Retina Radio. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to New Retina Radio's coverage of the AAO 22 annual meeting. We're looking forward to more meeting coverage in the new year, but until then, make sure you are subscribed to hear future episodes.